can open your copy of the scriptures to 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8, if you have the little black Bible under the seat in front of you, it's page 216. As you turn there, um, let me share with you a quote from Thomas Jefferson. He said, the government you elect is the government you deserve. Now, in the political system in which he and our founding fathers envisioned, the government is not supposed to be something that is imposed upon the people by hereditary succession or military conquest. The government is of the people. So, for better or worse, we are responsible for choosing our own elected representatives. And as much as we like to complain about our government, we must recognize that we are the ones responsible for choosing them. We place the politicians in their places. In other words, our leaders tell us something about ourselves as a people. They tell us what it is we value, what we esteem, what we want in a leader. In a sense, they're a mirror for our own heart. Now, I know the objection rising in your mind, I didn't vote for these people, that's the fault of the left or the right, you didn't vote for them, it's not your fault. Well, before you let yourself off the hook, let me ask you to consider a hypothetical question. Suppose the invisible God took on human flesh and came to earth to establish his own government. Now, suppose for a moment he was a candidate for the 2024 presidential election, and in his government... All that is wrong in the world will be made right. All the corruption will be cleaned up. No questionable campaign contributions, no backdoor deals with lobbyists, no cover-up for sexual misconduct, no mudslinging, no bribes, no wasteful spending. He'll clean up all the problems in Washington. So far, so good. Surely we can all get behind that kind of candidate. But suppose he also demands to clean up all the problems inside you. Suppose that if you vote for him, he requires you to surrender your individual rights and give him total control over your personal life, your finances, your marriage, your free time, your children, your job, your hobbies, your desires, your will, your very self. And suppose it's an all-or-nothing offer. Complete submission to the universal rule of this king or... You go look for some corner of the universe where you can hide from his demands and seek out an existence focused on your own self and your own rights and your own pleasures. Would you vote for him? Would you accept the conditions of his rule? Or would you be like those citizens who cried out in Luke 19, verse 14, we do not want this man to reign over us. Now, my main point in this sermon is as follows. In order to rejoice in the hope of God's true king, you must become a part of God's new humanity. In order to rejoice in the hope of God's true king, you must become a part of God's new humanity. And the emphasis in this is twofold. On the one hand, if you are not a part of God's new humanity, I pray that you would join it today. On the other hand, if you are, I pray that your heart will be stirred up in hope for the reign of God's true king this morning. So with that in mind, 1 Samuel chapter 8. Let's read the word of God together. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. 
Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them, according to all the deeds that they have done from the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them." So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves." And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go, every man to his city. This is the reading of God's word. God, I pray that as we look into your word this morning, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we would see your truth clearly, that you would stir up affection and king in your spirit, by your spirit's power, and in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So if you're taking notes, I'm going to consider this text under two main headings. First, a rebellious people. That's verses 4 through 9, and then 19 through 22, a rebellious people. And secondly, an oppressive ruler. That's verses 10 through 18. But then we're going to turn those points around and consider how they point us toward something greater. Namely, they serve as a foil to point us toward a ruler who will not oppress and a people who will not rebel. A ruler who will not oppress and a people who will not rebel. Our text opens with Samuel as an old man. Many years have passed since chapter 7. Chapter 7 was the high point of Samuel's ministry. Remember a few weeks ago we saw in chapter 7 that he, Samuel had led the people in repentance. They had followed after the Lord. They had put away the other gods. They had turned to the Lord and he had delivered them from the Philistines. And in chapter 7, verses 15 through 17, we read that he judged Israel all the days of his life. He went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. That was the high point of his ministry. 
He had faithfully led the people, and God had delivered them. But now, as chapter 8 opens, many years have passed. Samuel's now an old man, and he has appointed his own sons to judge the people. Does that sound familiar? Like Eli from the beginning of the book of Samuel. Samuel's sons are not following in his ways. They are turning away from the Lord and turning aside after gain. Joel and Abijah, verses 2 and 3, they saw their position and influence as priests, as prophets, as an opportunity to line their own pockets. They had not learned the lessons of Hophni and Phinehas. This opening sets an ominous tone for the chapter. It's like the soundtrack in a suspenseful, suspenseful movie. They meant to, these verses are meant to warn us that though Samuel had led the people through a time of repentance and spiritual growth, that change would not last. Though Samuel had walked with the Lord, his sons would not. Samuel had set up, remember, the stone of Ebenezer to safeguard the people from that slow drift, that slow drift in all of our hearts away from God. But now his own sons are leading the people into rebellion against God. Before I jump into the main point of a rebellious people, let me just say two things by way of application as we think about Joel and Abijah and how they are leading the people away from God. First, you know, the moral downfall of Joel and Abijah, so close upon the heels of the example of Hophni and Phinehas and Eli, it should be a warning to all those who serve in ministry. Those who have the responsibility to provide spiritual care and oversight for God's people will face temptation to use that influence and that authority for their own gain. I'm sure you know, just as well as I do, the reality of this danger today. So pray for your pastors. Pray for your pastors that they would be humbly dependent upon God for His sustaining grace. But secondly, notice that the story does not end with Joel and Abijah. God is at work in the people of God. Think of that. Even in the failures of the leadership of God's people, even when the pastors and the priests and the prophets fail to provide correct and biblical leadership, God is at work directing the circumstances, redeeming his people. So if you feel this morning like your hopes have been dashed by spiritual leaders that have failed you, let me encourage you to look for God's sovereign hand in the midst of of your pain. He is at work and he's calling you to trust him. And so we see in verses 1 through 3, which really provide a setting for the main narrative. Let's look now at our first point in verse 4, a rebellious people. So the elders of Israel, they gather together, they come to Samuel, they see that Samuel isn't getting any younger. They clearly don't trust the leadership of Joel and Abijah, and so they see a crisis of leadership transition coming. In chapter 12, verse 12, we also know that they saw the rising threat of the Ammonites. The Ammonites were a military power to the east, and they had a powerful king, Nahash. And so they saw that looming threat, and they saw this leadership crisis. And so they take matters into their own hands, and they ask Samuel to appoint them a king to lead them through this future conflict. Now, on the surface, that seems reasonable enough thing to do. A strong military leader would certainly unite the tribes of Israel would certainly help them navigate the upcoming conflict. But though man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. So what does this request for a king indicate about the heart of the people? In verse 6, we see that Samuel is not happy about this request. 
The thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. So is Samuel just pouting because the people have rejected him and his sons from ruling over them? Or is he unhappy because he recognizes the spiritual drift that has led the people to make this request? Samuel prays to the Lord as after the people asked him for a king. And in verse 7, we hear the Lord's reply. Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. How is the people's request a rejection of the Lord? Does it say there, we've rejected God being a king over us? To answer this question, let us look back to two other instances of the times when the people of Israel were threatened by enemies. Once in chapter 7 and once in chapter 4. In chapter 7, you remember the Philistines rose up against the people. When they had assembled at Mizpah in this time of nationwide repentance, revival, the Philistines arose against them, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They depended upon the Lord. They, they prayed to the Lord. And the Lord, we read in chapter 7, verse 10, the Lord thundered from heaven against the Philistines, and the Philistines were defeated. Just as Hannah had prayed in chapter 2, verse 10, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder from heaven. So in chapter 7, the people had depended upon the Lord. They had depended upon him, and he had fought for them. Now go back to chapter 4. There, they also faced a looming military threat. And the elders of the people there decided that the best way to defeat the Philistines was to bring the Ark of God, the symbol of God's presence, into the camp of the Israelites. They did not cry out to God. They did not pray. They did not depend upon Him. They wanted God's deliverance on their own terms, by their own methods. And you remember what happened. They were defeated by the Philistines. The ark was taken, and the people were defeated. And Hophni and Phinehas were killed. God is not a tame lion. He cannot be manipulated or controlled by man. And the people had forgotten this lesson. They're back to the same place they were in chapter 4. They're not crying out to the Lord for deliverance. They're crying out for a king to lead them in battle. Just like their logic in chapter 4, there is some measure of reasonableness to their request. You know, it doesn't sound like a bad idea to have a strong military leader to unify the tribes. And having a king isn't sinful. It's actually something that God has promised them, that God would raise up a king for them, going back as far as Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So if the action itself of requesting a king is not sinful, why is this seen as a rejection of the Lord? What about their heart in this request turns this request into a rejection of God? Notice they're not seeking God's help. They're not praying to the Lord. They're not asking from a place of dependence upon God. They're depending upon themselves. Remember just as Abraham took matters into his own hands to fulfill God's promises in his own way? So now the people are taking matters into their own hands by seeking to bring about God's plans in their own way on their own timetable. And God sees this as a rejection of him. He sees their heart. He sees they're not asking out of trust and dependence upon him, but because they want to place their trust in a human king. One commentator wrote this, It's not monarchy itself, but trust 
in monarchy that is the villain. And there's a warning here for you and I. Our actions may appear commendable, reasonable, moral, upstanding. We may even be well-respected by others. But God sees our hearts. The Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him, actions are weighed. We can deceive others. We can even deceive deceive ourselves as to our true motives. But God is not fooled. He sees us as we really are. And all the good things we do that are not motivated by trust in God are thrown under the rubbish heap of sin that piles up to our shame and condemnation. As Paul said in Romans 14, 23, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. When we see our hearts as they really are, full of pride and selfishness and self-righteousness, all wrapped up in a guise of self-deception, you know, I'm not as bad as that other fellow. When we see our hearts as they really are, we will cry out with the psalmist, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? We see in verse 7 that you do not have to be a notorious sinner to reject God. But let's look more closely at the request that the people make of Samuel. They make their request in verse 5, or it begins to sound more like a demand, doesn't it? Especially when you get into verse 19 and 20. There they say, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Note a few things. First, they want to be like all the nations around them. We'll come back to that in a second. Second, look at what they're asking for. They're asking for a king to judge them. They're asking for a king to go out before them and for a king to fight their battles for them. That doesn't sound so bad, but let's compare this request to what God had laid out for his people. He'd given them a model of kingship, what he wanted for them in a king. Turn over in your Bibles, a few pages to the left, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 17. Here Moses speaks to the people of Israel before they enter the land of Canaan. He's giving instruction to the people so that they will know how to live when they come into the land. And in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 20, we read God's instructions to the people about kingship, about what kind of king he would want for them to have for themselves. He writes this, Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it, and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. 
So in verse 14 of Deuteronomy 17, God allows for the people to set a king over them, like all the nations around them. Now that might surprise you, since the people had used that same language to ask for a king in our text. But though the language is the same, that the king would be like all the nations around them, the meaning is not. God grants that the people of Israel should have a king, just as the nations around them have kings. But then he lays out his requirements for kingship. First negatively in verses 15 through 17, and then positively in verses 18 through 20. You see those in verses 15 through 17, he says the king must not be a foreigner. He must not acquire many horses for himself. He must not lead the people back to Egypt. He must not acquire many wives. And he must not acquire excessive silver or gold. Positively, in verses 18 through 20, he shall write for himself a copy of the law of God. He shall read the law of God all the days of his life. He shall fear the Lord. He shall keep the commandments of God. He shall be humble and not be lifted up above his brothers. Now, this is not the model of kingship that we would choose. This is not the candidate you would elect for president. This is not the model of kingship that the people of Israel wanted. They wanted a king to be a strong military leader. Strong military leaders need horses in that day. They need armies. They need silver and gold to pay those armies. Just like their descendants wanted a Messiah to defeat their Roman oppressors, the Israelites wanted a king that could lead them in battle against their enemies. They had adopted a view of kingship that had more in common with the surrounding culture than with the word of God. But God's king is not what we would expect. And this should this surprise us? God is, after all, not a man. He's not like us. Now, we live in a different era of redemptive history from the people in our text, but we face the same cultural pressures. And underneath this request for a king, there is a deeper question, one that we all ask today. What is the good life? What does it mean to flourish as a people? What does it mean to flourish as an individual? Political success, financial security, you fill in the blank. Many horses and many wives, I hope not for you. Or fearing the Lord and keeping his commandments. Is your answer shaped by the culture around you or by the word of God? And we see a rebellious people in our text. They've rejected God. They've rejected the model of kingship that he had given them in his word. But if we're honest... We all see a rebellious person when we look in the mirror. But in our text, we see more than what we just find in the mirror. We'll move on now to verses 10 through 18. There we see what kind of government a rebellious people deserves. This is our second point, an oppressive ruler, verses 10 through 18. The people asked for a king like all the nations. They wanted a king that would be a military ruler who would have the authority, the power to lead them in battle. And God gives them what they ask for. You know, as a side note, let's just be a subtle reminder to you, to me, that we don't always know what we should ask for. So we should not be dismayed when God does not give us what we want. Sometimes God not giving us what we want is the best thing he could do for us. You know, my son loves tools. He always wants to play with them. But he's 21 months old. So if I gave him a table saw to play with, I would not be a good father. When God says no to us, he does it for his own good 
and wise and loving purposes. But in the case of 1 Samuel 8, God gives the people what they ask for. Before he does so, though, he instructs Samuel to warn them about the ways of the king that they want to rule over them. You read in the summary of the king's ways in verses 10 through 18, and you heard that refrain, he will take, he will take, he will take, he will take. Now, you don't need a political science degree to understand the workings of this government. If you want a king that has a strong military, well, he must get soldiers from somewhere. He will take your sons to be soldiers. And those soldiers, well, that army, they're going to need food, so he's going to need crops, he's going to need cooks, he's going to need money, he's going to need land, and where will he get all of this? From the people themselves. He will take your children and your land and your crops and your money to support his government. This is the price you will pay for having a king like all the nations. And this is indeed what would happen if you read on in the story. As the kingdom expanded, the government grew, the demands for conscription of labor and taxation also grew. This is what ultimately led to the division of the nation after Solomon. In 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 4, the people cry out to Solomon's son, Rehoboam, and they said this, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke upon us, and we will serve you. But Rehoboam refused to listen to the people. He refused to lighten the burden upon them and instead even threatened to increase it. And the the ten northern tribes rebelled against him and set up their own government. And the kingdom of Israel was divided from that day forward. So the rebellious people in our text have chosen their own government. And we see that this government will, by necessity, take from them. It will, necessity, by necessity, oppress them. They will get a king like all the nations. And like the kings of the nations, this king will oppress them and tax them and place a heavy yoke upon them. But this raises a problem. Attention. Attention that threatens to pull the book of First and Second Samuel apart. Like a high-stakes game of tug-of-war. You got the rope. On one side of this rope, you have the text like ours. It's a harsh warning about kings. All this business about taxation and oppression and rejection of God. And you also see this in 1 Samuel 12. And you go on through the history of the people and you see all the ways that the kings fall short. That's on one side of this rope. On the other side, you have the promises of, his God, to his, the promises of God to his people. Injustice and righteousness and wisdom. These promises are all through the Bible. But they even bookend the book of First and Second Samuel. Originally, this was really, it's like two volumes of one book. And if you go to the very beginning, in First Samuel chapter 1 and 2, you read there in Hannah's prayer, in chapter 2, verse 10. She hoped for the day when God would anoint his righteous king to rule over the people. He says, the Lord will, she said, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. Even more striking is that at the very end, in 2 Samuel 23, you read the last words of David. It says this in 2 Samuel 23, verses 1 through 4. These are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, He dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, 
like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. So which is it? Will the king be the one who takes away your children, takes away your land, taxes you and oppresses you? Or will the king be the one who rules justly over men and causes them to flourish like grass after a spring rain? You know, this tension is so strong that many scholars just conclude, well, there must be two different source materials here, two different authors underneath here. One that viewed kingship positively as, as what would come in line with God's promises, and one that viewed kingship negatively as really this development where the people rejected God. And they conclude there's no way to really reconcile them. We just have to accept two different perspectives. I do not agree that we have to go to that length. The tension is there, no doubt, though. But what is that tension meant to do for us, for you, today? How are we supposed to hold together this tension between the experience of kingship that is oppressive and the expectation of kingship that is a source of blessing and flourishing for God's people. You know, this tension is not unique to 1 Samuel. It's not unique to the issue of kingship. This is a tension that the people of God live with in every age. In fact, let me suggest to you that this tension is an essential ingredient to the life of faith. Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The things that we hope for are things that are not seen. That is, there is the world of things around you, the things that you see, and then there are the things that you do not see, and those are the things that you hope for. Now, many people today think that faith is the opposite of reason, as though faith requires some blind leap into irrationality and contradiction, as though you look at something that's not true and just do your level best to believe that it is true. Like when you watch a superhero movie, you want to be entertained, so you suspend disbelief. You know something's not true, but you suspend that disbelief so that you can enjoy the movie. Biblical faith is not like this. It's not a suspension of disbelief for the sake of feeling good about yourself and drumming up some hope for the afterlife. Yes, if you begin with the conclusion that the world that is seen is all that exists, then you are left with no choice but a blind leap of irrational faith. But if you allow the possibility that the God of the Bible is really there and really has spoken to us in his word, then faith is the most rational option open to you. Biblical faith says that the things that are seen, the things around us, like oppressive government institutions, are passing away. But the things that are not seen, like the righteous rule of God's anointed king, are eternal. And the tension between our experience and our expectation is not meant to drive you to a blind faith, but is intended to display the infinite wisdom and power and sovereignty of God, that he can use crooked sticks to draw straight lines, that he can use sinful human choices to pave the way for the king that his people would not choose for themselves. And this is indeed what we see in the rest of the Bible. In the marvelous, infinite wisdom and sovereignty of God, he uses the institution of kingship in Israel, despite the people's sinful desires, despite the fact that they had actually rejected God and asking for a king, he uses the institution of kingship to prepare the way for his true king, the Messiah, to come. 
Take comfort, believer. Even when we fail, God uses our failure. He uses our sin in his grand plan of redemption. He's like a grand champion chess player, and we're like little children. We only see the move right in front of us. He sees all of the moves from beginning to end in one seamless reality. We see a mistake that cannot be remedied. He sees an opportunity to display his infinite wisdom and power and grace. And so, believer, when you face some point of tension in your life between the reality that you see around you and the unseen reality of God's promises, and when you struggle to believe that that unseen reality of God's promises is really true, capital T, true, remember that that tension is an essential ingredient in the life of faith. As Paul would write in Romans 8, 24 and 25, Now, hope that is seen is not hope. Who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We've seen in our text a rebellious people and an oppressive ruler. But now in the few minutes that we have left, I'd like to turn those around and discuss how they point us to a ruler who will not oppress and a people who will not rebel. In 1947, Winston Churchill famously said this in the House of Commons, Many forms of government have been tried and will be tried in this world of sin and woe. No one pretends that democracy is perfect or all-wise. Indeed, it has been said that democracy is the worst form of government, except for all those other forms that have been tried from time to time. Could there be such a thing as a government that would not be corrupt, that would not be inefficient? A government that would have no need to separate powers into three different branches because it would not be corrupt? A legislator that would only make good and wise rules? A judge that would only issue right and true verdicts? A supreme executive that would not oppress those under his authority. An all-powerful king that is gentle and lowly in heart, whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. This is what all the failed instances of human government point us toward. They, they point us toward a govern, the government of God's righteous king. In the time of Samuel, the hope for this king begins to take shape. Even here at its inception, a shadow grows in the kingship, a tension that will only grow over time. Israel's first king will fail them. Their expectations will be dashed. Their second king, David, he will be a man after God's own heart, but he also will fail miserably. The high point of his reign, he'll commit adultery, he'll murder, and the sword will not depart from his house. His own family will be torn apart from the inside out. And all of the subsequent kings, you go down the line, Even the best of them will be men at best. And so this tension builds over time. It boils over to a breaking point when the people are exiled from the land and the last king is taken away to Babylon and the line of kings is ended. Where is God's king 
then? Where is the ruler who will make all things right, who will fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 11, verses 3 and 4, where this king will delight in the fear of the Lord? He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Where is the king who in Psalm 2 has power to rule over the rulers of the earth, and yet who offers refuge to all who are humble and poor in spirit, who call upon him? Maybe it was always too good to be true. Maybe it'd be better to just get used to things as they are and stop all this hoping. Maybe that's where you are this morning. In a world where head-on collisions leave a wake of heartache, where divorce leaves a lifetime of disappointment, where pain and loss and depression and failure wrap their fingers around everything you hold dear, maybe it would be easier to just stop hoping, to find some way to just cope with life as it is and make the best of it. Hope, it seems, is a one-way street, And its end is just disappointment. If you feel that way this morning, let me offer you the words of this great theologian, of the Hobbiton of the Shire, Samwise Gamgee. When he found himself in Rivendell, the home of the elves, after completing his impossible quest to destroy the one ring of power, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? J.R.R. Tolkien captures here a taste of the joy that the people of God will experience when God's kingdom is fully realized, when God's king returns to make all things new. You see, the Christian hope is not based on idealism or mythology or imagination. It's based on a person. 2,000 years ago, a young woman saw an angel who spoke to her in this way. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. A kingdom with no end. All of the hopes for a true and righteous king coalesce in the person of Jesus. Not a figment of our imagination, not a religious ideal, not a mythical figure, but the man, Jesus. The divine Son of God who took on real human flesh, who walked the streets of Nazareth, who healed the sick, who cast out the demons, who fed the hungry, who walked on water, who raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. And yet, all of this, he was not the king that his people expected. He disrupted their status quo. He did not come to join their side. In fact, he came and revealed the people for who they are. He revealed their sin, their rebellion, their pride. He even assumed for himself authority that only belongs to God. He was not the king that his people wanted. Just like the elders of Israel in 1 Samuel 8 did not want a king that was according to God's plan, so too this man Jesus came to his own people, and they did not receive him. The only crown they gave him was a crown of thorns. 
When Pilate, the Roman governor, presented him before the Jews and cried out, Behold your king! They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! But his kingdom is not of this world. On the third day, after he was crucified, as he lay in his tomb, dead, wrapped in grave's clothes, his heart began to beat again. For God raised him from the dead because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Death no longer has dominion over him. The Silicon Valley experts seeking the path to immortality, they're 2,000 years behind schedule. Jesus defeated not the enemy of the Jews, but the enemy of humanity. He defeated sin and death and the devil. And he was raised from the dead, not to establish a kingdom of this world, but to establish a kingdom that will reign over all the kingdoms of this world. He is the righteous king of Deuteronomy 17. He is the resolution to the tension between the expectation of kingship and the experience of kingship in Israel. And he is now exalted to the right hand of God, reigning there until all his enemies are put under his feet, when he will return to judge the world punish the wicked, and usher in the kingdom of God. That will be the day for the citizens of God's kingdom when everything sad will come untrue. Not that it will be erased from your story, but like the scars of Jesus' hands and feet, everything sad in your life will be turned to good. But there is a cost. You must die to yourself to become part of God's new humanity. And that is our final point. We've seen how an oppressive ruler points us forward to a ruler who will not oppress. Now we see that a rebellious people point us forward to a people who will not rebel. In 1 Samuel 8, this rebellious people elect for themselves an oppressive ruler. In their case, Thomas Jefferson was right. The government you elect is the government you deserve. But now let me ask you, what kind of people would elect God's righteous king? What kind of people would joyfully submit to this humble king? You may think you're a good candidate, that you would not rebel against God's king. But when he shines the light of truth into your dark heart, exposing your sin for what it is, left to yourself, you will run and hide. And like the elders of Israel, you will seek out your own king for the throne When you're confronted with his demand that you surrender yourself completely to him, you will cry out like the chief priests, away with him. There is not one of us who would choose this king for ourselves. But God, but God is acting, even now, to create for himself a new humanity, a people who will not rebel against his king, who instead will joyfully, willingly, freely, eagerly submit to him and long for his rule over them. By the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, God is now raising a new humanity to spiritual life. This new humanity is formed of all those who recognize their sin and surrender their lives to God's rule. There are no dual citizens in God's kingdom. You cannot keep your old passport. You must die to your sin and yourself 
and give yourself up completely to God. If you do not, then you will not enjoy the blessings of life in the kingdom of God. Instead, you will face eternal ruin. The Bible is not vague. The Bible is not ambiguous. The Bible is not silent about the fate of those who reject the rule of God's king. You know, we even looked earlier at the last oracle of David, where he spoke about the blessings of how those who submit to God's king are like the grass that, that grows after the rain. They flourish. Well, in that same oracle, a few verses later, David speaks of those who reject the rule of God's king. He writes that they are like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand, and they are utterly consumed by fire. If you will not humble yourself and turn away from your sin and trust in God's king, then his rule will mean eternal destruction for you. It will be the beginning of an eternity of terror and pain and suffering and sorrow beyond any that you have ever known. It will not be a time when everything sad will come untrue for you, but rather when everything sad will continue and increase for all eternity. But the offer of the gospel is open to you today to come and die and find that dying is the doorway to life itself. Even today, you can become part of this new humanity. You can become a citizen of this government you don't deserve. If you will turn away from yourself and turn to God, then you will become a member of this new humanity, this new people of God. The Apostle Peter described the people of God in this way. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the new humanity that God is forming to be a people who will not rebel against his authority. And God is gathering these people into a body, no longer divided along ethnic and cultural lines like the nation of Israel, but an assembly of people that is united to one another because they are united to the head of the body, that is to Jesus himself. He is the head of the body. And this new humanity is made up of individual members that need one another to function properly. They will not flourish and grow in isolation from the body of Christ, that is, from the church. You know, this new humanity is not what you would expect. You look around, you don't see people shining with halos over their heads, radiating the glory of God. You come to church and you find all kinds of ordinary and maybe even some eccentric people. They certainly don't look all that impressive. They're not what you would expect. But then again, their king was not what you would have expected either. In our day, it is not uncommon to think that you can do the Christian life on your own. But that is not how God has designed this new humanity to function. We are living stones that are being built up into a spiritual house. The other stones will rub you the wrong way from time to time. And it will be painful. But we must trust that God has a purpose even for the pain. That even in the pain, he is at work shaping, chiseling, forming this new humanity into the image of his son. Into a people who will not rebel, but will joyfully submit to his king.
Let me close with a few words from the book of Isaiah, chapter 33. If you would enjoy the rule of God's king, then you must be one who is part of his new humanity, who joyfully submit to his king. And if that is you this morning, then may your hope grow. May it, may it flourish in your heart as you look to the rule of this king. In Isaiah 33, we see some instances, some, some pictures of what this king will be like and what his reign will be like. There will be a day when God's kingdom will be fully realized on this earth. Verse 5, The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness. In that day, verse 17, Your eyes, O people of God, will behold the king in his beauty. They will see a land that stretches afar. In that day, verse 21, The Lord in majesty will be for us, a place of broad rivers and streams. And in verse 22, in that day, the Lord will be your judge. The Lord will be your lawgiver. The Lord will be your king. He will save us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, oh God, we pray that your kingdom would come, that your king would come, that he would reign in our hearts today until the day when all of his enemies will be put under his feet and all that is wrong in the world will be undone. And we pray that we would be found on that day to be a people for your own possession. We long for that day. And for any who do not yet know this king, who have not yet submitted to him, I pray that today they would do so. In Christ's name, amen.